Okay, I'm just gonna pull up the Wikipedia article for Salem Witch Trials. For shits and gigs. The shits and gigs economy. The shits and gigs economy. <laughs> Wait, did you hear her? What do you think your Puritan name would be? I already have one. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, no, that's a good question. Um, I feel like, well, my grandmother's name is Elizabeth. So I think I would have to be an Elizabeth. And then I think on my, I'm just going to go back in my own lineage to other like Puritan names that are in my own personal heritage because I know there are some. Elizabeth is a, definitely a very Puritan first name. And then let's see. Obviously not Johnson or Weaver or Smith or Manugian. Mm. Oh, I guess I don't have any like real English last names anywhere. But I would just go for the classic, I think, Williams. So I think I would go for Elizabeth Williams. I respect that. What about you? De Decrease Chapman. Decrease yeah. Chapman? Yeah, you know how there was Increase Mathers? Okay, so I'm going to be Spandex Johnson then. You know how there was Cotton Mathers? Yes. Yeah. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be sheer text proprietary stronger than steel unbreakable by human hands blend Johnson. I think that's really strong. Bandex Johnson and decrease Chapman. Yeah, that's solid. So if you couldn't guess by that how's the word scintillating? Scintillating? Scintillating. If you couldn't guess by that by that stinkolating introduction this week, we're talking about the Salem Witch Trials, a much requested episode. Play ball, literally, because it is a minor league baseball team. The Salem and it, Yeah, right. Finally, that sound works. And I think that's the sound from Fenway. And so that works, too. That works, too. Um, yeah. So the titular episode about Tichuba, <laughs> the South American. <laughs> <laughs> the South American house servant accused of witchcraft. I thought she was a slave. Uh, oh, yeah, she definitely was. She was like an indentured servant, heavy right. scare quotes. Because um, she had a husband and like a family. So she mm. was an indentured servant. Mm. Not that it's really worth differentiating. She had a terrible life and she was physically stolen right. from her uh, home. But it's legally so, different. A lot yeah, of, but it's... Yeah, a lot of yeah. law in this episode. Yeah, because the Puritans, one of the things that made the Massachusetts colony somewhat distinct uh, is there were slaves in Massachusetts, but uh, not the Puritans. Puritans right. were not about it. They were all about indentured servitude, which they felt was somehow better, even though it obviously was not better. So do you, do you want to give us an introduction to the Massachusetts colony as a way of getting us? Sure. Okay. So the mat. Okay. Set the scene. Set the scene. It's, I, I'm going to set the scene a few years back. So I'm going to set the scene in like, 
really quick going to look up. I, I'm going to try not to get any years wrong in this one. So there might be more pausing for me to get to. We'll just cut them. Cut them in post. Yeah. Facts. Yes, yeah, 1684. Never mind. I'm not going to look them up because I was right. So I'm just going to keep, <laughs> I'm going to just go hard. So let me take you to Massachusetts Bay Colony. It's 1684. The Royal Charter, which charter was sort of like, You've probably heard the word in like pirate movies and stuff before. Like a charter was something you could get that was like half a set of commands, but also half a set of like rights and privileges issued to you by the king because the king at this time was still like considered to be divine, like in some way either descended from God or ordained in his uh, rule by God. So a charter is like 50% things that you have been tasked by God to do and 50% things that God says you are entitled to do. So in that way, it's kind of a constitution, but it's not at all because constitution was not at all invented yet. But that was the pre-constitution constitution. So the Royal Charter of the Massachusetts Bay Colony was issued in 1629, um, but it was revoked in 1684, meaning that during the, the Civil War in England in the 1640s, uh, like the Oliver Cromwell times, um, that's when the Protestant church of England, right. Became like flipped and was more powerful. Okay. So anyway, so then they revoked the charter that had been issued by the previous King for the Massachusetts Bay colony, because they were like, God actually didn't want this. God wanted our thing <laughs> that we want. And then there was like this big, um, there was a, a wide period of time where there was a lot of debate about what it was that God wanted from the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And the Salem witch trials happened right in the middle of that. So half of it was that God wanted the Massachusetts Bay Colony to expand as much as possible into the wilderness of North America, including Maine. So Maine at the time was like a very um, violent, challenging, brutal frontier of expansion. Think like starving, cold, like frozen ground that you can't plant in very, very hostile uh, indigenous people who had already lived there and who had already lost a lot of territory in Massachusetts. And while they still were fighting and raiding in Massachusetts at the fringes of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, they were losing already in Massachusetts, but in Maine, they had still had a pretty strong hold in the 1680s. So a lot of small like mission colony colonies were sent up into Maine and were just absolutely like blown back by, um, I think it was the Algonquin. I'm going to look it up really quick. Yeah. By the Algonquin. Native Americans. Uh, so Salem 
was kind of like a state of the Massachusetts Bay Colony at the time. So you might notice, for example, if you were to drive from New York to Maine, uh, as you know, a lot of the listeners of this podcast have done this summer, you might notice that you pass through several towns that are all named Salem. And you're like, why is there a Salem, Massachusetts and like a Salem town, Massachusetts and a new Salem, Massachusetts and a Salem, New Hampshire and a new Salem, New Hampshire all the way up to like a Salem, Maine and a new Salem, Maine, because they were all actually in the same state and not different towns. They were differentiated mm-hmm. by like Salem Commons, mm-hmm. Salem Village, Salem Town. Like, right. So that entire area basically from what is now the border of Maine and New Hampshire to like Lynn, Massachusetts on Mm -hmm. the South side and like Andover, Massachusetts on the West side and Topsfield, Mm -hmm. I think is like on the outskirts of it. Like that was all Salem, which was a sort of like subsect of the Massachusetts Bay colony. So that's where we are. Uh, And what would you say was the, so we're talking Puritans, right? We're talking buckle hat people. We're talking swishing cloaks. We're talking walking sticks. We're talking like bloomer style long pants with the white starched bottoms, right? Am I following? I'm not a New Englander. Yes, you're following. Yeah. So, (laughs) um, yeah. So I should say, oh, sorry. The new king is the good King James, King James the second. This is the king at the time. Couldn't remember his name. Um, but yeah, so the, these buckle hat people, they're following what they believe to be the word of God, which is that the previous Church of England, the Church of England that they left at the time, which has now since been overturned in that uh, civil war, um, that that church had strayed from you know, the pure teachings of Protestantism. Uh, And it was too, like, infected with, like, Catholicism to ever be good Protestantism again. So they were like, we're leaving. We're going to do Protestantism pure pure style, pure styles in the (laughs) colonies. So they really don't – what's interesting about the Puritans is – While the narrative, if you go to public school in America, is that they came to America for religious freedom, they were extremely intolerant of other religions. And in fact, many of the people who were put on trial in the Salem witch trials were people who had expressed sympathies or had connections with either Catholicism or even Quaker um, practices, which now we kind of think of Quakers, especially in American history about 100 years later, we think of Quakers as like um, very generous, um, very peaceful. You know, the Quakers were instrumental in facilitating the Underground Railroad, instrumental in facilitating the Continental Congress, um, very like love thy neighbor style of, are they Christians? Yeah, Christianity. But Puritans did not, they were not, not even Quakers, you know, like they wouldn't, they don't fuck with anything but Puritanism. Right. Uh, it doesn't matter how accepting or quiet or keep to themselves these other religions are. They, Puritans have a strange mix of 
insane intolerance and simultaneously their mission is not necessarily to expand and proselytize. So unlike a lot of the Catholic missions in early America, they really were trying to get like a foothold in America to start a Puritan colony period. They weren't necessarily as interested in like going into holy war to convert entire other communities. They just individually and this is true to this day, individually, culturally, and socially isolate and shame and maybe burn down a house or two, a person until they either leave the community or convert to Puritan Puritan Protestantism. Well, it's interesting that note, because I think that connects to the trials, which we will we will cover mm-hmm. the events of in depth, but I, I'm assuming a baseline understanding of at least the sort of cultural attitudes of them for any of our listeners. If not, we'll get to it in a second. But I think it's interesting that you say that about the severity of the belief, obviously, present in the name Puritan, like purity. But mm-hmm. it's interesting because though these trials are often looked back on as a moment of extreme human irrationality, I think often lost in these conversations or, or lost in, in thinking about why one would conduct a witch trial in this manner is one, witch trials were happening all over Europe at the time. This was actually yes. past the heyday of European witch trials, but there were, you know, they like scholars estimate something like 300,000 people tried for witchcraft. Yes. Um, and maybe 40,000 to 60,000 executed or convicted, convicted, I guess, not executed. Um, various punishments depending on where you were but also that within puritanism if you're a person who is in this really bitter difficult environment you have come here to establish a colony and the reason for your colony and the reason for your establishment is your religion which is the stamping out of the devil Mm -hmm. not just the glorifying of god but the stamping out of the devil which is evil yes a witch, which, you know, there's not really a uniform definition, but I think for our purposes, a witch being a person who covenants with Satan in order to gain some of his power and do his will on earth. Perfect. That is the ultimate betrayal of what you're there for. It's not just incidentally yes. dangerous to your mission. It is inherently yes. destructive to your way of life. Right. It's much more destructive to your way of life than even a violent crime that happens in the like quote unquote natural world, like not involving the devil. Like it would be better to murder people. And in fact, people often did. And I think you also mentioned something when you said this bitter, like very difficult existence that I want to highlight that like, I think it's like some, maybe not obvious, but like it's inherent in sort of like the attitudes of Puritans at the time is like, they also loved that. Like they didn't come to a place that was nice and easy. That wasn't what they wanted. They are not transcendentalists, which come much later in Massachusetts religious history, who are searching for like an Eden of community and natural glory. They are, you know, digging in the cold dirt every day in penance and servitude to God. 
right? They're growing the nastiest corn you've ever seen. And it's funny you should mention that because actually uh, one of the rogue theories about what was quote unquote really happening during the witch trials (laughs) is that they were uh, suffering from like an infection that was Mm -hmm. a result of mold in the grain stores. Um, Short answer, that's probably not what was happening. Long answer, it doesn't really matter if they were also suffering from an infection due to mold spores in their grain stores. Mm. First of all, band name. Uh, right. Old spores in their grain stores. But well, also... Let's get into what happened. Yeah. Let's get into what happened. Yeah, and let's we'll get into what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're talking the period of the witchcraft trials, uh, or witch trials, I guess, is February 1692 to May 1693. That's considered to be the era that we're talking about. So the yes. height of witch trials in Europe... Um, Germany, Italy, England, mostly other places too, especially Germany. Uh, yeah, was about fifty years earlier. So early sixteen hundreds, yeah. peaking in like the forties, is when we're looking at like mass numbers of people being accused, being convicted of witchcraft. Um, and there had been witch trials in the Massachusetts colony before, but nothing on this yes. scale, nothing like this. Which is interesting because there were actually, there were more significant and a bigger scale witch trials in Connecticut about 50 years previous, but those are not famous at all and are super boring, Uh, which we'll talk about later. It's like, there's this big question of like, why is it that hundreds of thousands of witches were tried in Europe and three dozen witches were tried in Connecticut? 50 years and 100 years prior to, what, 24 people being tried in Massachusetts. But this, the 24 people that were tried in Massachusetts, is so enduring of a story. Right. I'm going to do my best to cover it. It's a pretty, Mm -hmm. you can get really in-depth with the complexity of the characters because we have really good records of these and actually a lot of them are accessible online and, and viewable and interesting. Mm-hmm. Ish. Though saying? many of them were destroyed, right. which is actually something that's very unusual. Uh, and perhaps one of the reasons that the story continues to endure is that a lot of these records are retroactive and they were written around the time of the second witch trial, which was the famous individual witchcraft trial that involves a hypnotist. Okay, and I think, that's I think when yeah, I think you should drive. <laughs> Oh, no, no. I'm just saying that's when the records that we have were written about the ones that happened in 1692. Because actually, when you go through at the time, one of the things that Puritans loved was uh, reading and writing scripture and like these, these um, sort of like daily logs of the efforts of their devotion, if that makes sense. They weren't Mm -hmm. quite diaries because they weren't comprehensive of every single thing that a person did, but they were a means to memorialize and even prove in a a social context sometimes the efforts that they're making, the steps that they're making towards purity in their life. So especially the judges involved in the witchcraft trials, they were writing pages and pages every day 
the judges and the ministers are writing pages and pages of personal diaries every day about their pursuit of purity. And yet those pages in the time period of the Salem witchcraft trial, of the Salem witch trials, not the Salem witchcraft trial, the Salem witch trials are missing, which doesn't mean that they weren't writing them. It's almost certain that at the time they were writing these these detailed massive logs of their fight against the devil in these court cases, it's more likely that the city of Danvers, which is, it's so complicated. It's one of the towns that was part of Salem and has since changed its name and has distanced itself pretty significantly from the story of the Salem witch trials. The people who were accused and the accusers Most of them were citizens of what is now Danvers, uh, Massachusetts. The people who were of an upper caste, who were judges and ministers and literate people who were conducting these court cases were from what is now present day Salem. And they refer to those as Salem Town and Salem Village. Is that right? That's correct. So Salem Village is where the accused and the accusers most of them lived and then salem town is where the judges and the ministers lived um though the ministers the ministry was another piece of context in the massachusetts bay colony that was very disrupt uh very disrupted at the time the ministry and also the governorship so right right before the witch right before the panic of the witch trials, a new governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony is appointed and his name is Governor Phipps. And we learned a little bit about him when we went to the Maine Historical Society because he was the driving force behind the desire to to colonize Maine. Or he was the mouthpiece of that desire. And additionally, right before this had been happening, well, I guess not as directly before, but... um there was a merchant from Boston who would become the pastor of the village's congregational church, the village of Salem. And his name was Samuel Paris. He's very famous. You've probably heard about him in the recollections of these trials. Yes. Um, So he was a pastor. He'd studied at Harvard college. He came to Salem village with his wife, their three children, a niece of his and two indentured servants. The literature often sometimes refers to them as slaves. Um, from Barbados, uh, a man named John Indian and Tichuba, who was a woman, uh, also very, very famous in these stories. Um, some people think that she was African. Some people think that she was Caribbean, Native American descent. Um, but either way, they brought them from Barbados, where the Parises had been living before Yes. This. Yes. And Harvard, Just this is just a fun fact. This is the first iteration of Harvard. Harvard Divinity School was the the last word in education at the time. There was essentially no school that wasn't Divinity School. So Harvard was the only prestigious institution in the Americas at this point. Um, And... The Massachusetts Bay Colony has gone through like a good four or five pastors and ministers in Salem 
in recent history when when uh, Samuel Paris comes, because the Puritan villagers are have such a high standard of purity that they have essentially taken such severe issue and made such social frigidity towards the previous ministers and pastors that they have one by one quit their job and left, even though this is their calling and they studied at Harvard Divinity School to be a minister. Mm -hmm. And this is an amazing gig for that. Like, you know, (laughs) but the villagers are so severe. They refuse, they often would like refuse to do the uh, tasks that were set forth as like a devotion assignments of of uh demonstrating devotion so samuel paris sort of famously refused to cut his own firewood so there were these things that each minister or pastor would ask of the community like to provide firewood um often to provide uh like meat and eggs and other like dairy and animal products because pastors would not be like in the uh, like pens raising their own animals. Um, and yeah. And the Puritans just, if they did not like a pastor, they would just not provide them with food or firewood. And Samuel Paris, I think wrote in some of the few records that we had that he hadn't written in his journal in a little while because the ink in his house had frozen because no one would bring firewood for his family. But anyway, they hired Samuel Paris because he had just written a really uh, like amazing uh, religious treatise, I guess you would call it, which is called Memorable Providences. Uh, so named, so Providence Plantation is named. And it's actually good that you mentioned that he was so divisive because a lot of scholars I think credit that with being part of I mean it is part of how things ended up going down right Mm -hmm. people also say that early in he had like he was like contracted with the congregation yes right and relatively early in that I think he asked that he be compensated more like he wanted to own the parsonage yes right yes he wanted to own the land in the of the parsonage, which is now a historical site. It's just ruins, but it's very beautiful. Um, And eventually, I think just in the fall prior to the trials, they, uh, the villagers decided to stop paying him at all and wait until Massachusetts Bay Colony in a legal sense could oust him as essentially like a squatter on the parsonage. Right. So keeping in mind also that the legal status within Massachusetts Bay Colony is dubious right now due to the retraction that Eva mentioned earlier. An important point yes. for what happens in the trial. So Also part of why Governor Phipps was such a fucking maniac, because he right. was like, I'm going to have my charter. I'm going to get a new charter. I'm going to get all this land. Then they can't deny me. I'm going right. to basically own a whole country, like also wildly, wildly, violently racist person, as many of the people in the story are. Right. But he was like trying to eradicate the indigenous populations of Massachusetts Bay and Maine at the time, which was part of Massachusetts. Right. Uh, yeah. So the 
the actual action, the actual thing that happens that sparks the witch trials is that Paris's daughter, his niece, and their friend begin to act strangely. His daughter's nine, her name is Betty. His niece is 11, her name is Abigail Williams, and their friend is named Ann Putnam Jr. She's maybe 12, we don't really know. And they start acting in ways that we now associate with like horror movie, which mm-hmm. horror movie, which possessions. They're screaming, they're making weird sounds, they're throwing things, they're contorting their bodies in horrifying ways. And they're telling Paris that they're feeling bites and and pinches, biting and pinching sensation. And this is obviously a cause for concern for Paris. And he he knows, he believes what the cause of it is, which is the devil. And Eva and I earlier were talking about people trying to figure out what really happened, what was really going on. We'll never Mm -hmm. know. And I don't think for the purposes of this exact moment, it's that important. Maybe we'll cover some of the main theories in a minute. But for the purposes of the people in Massachusetts Bay Colony, they were experiencing attacks of the devil. The devil was attempting to possess them. It was not a coded moment, like, for example, a common religious coded moment that we're all pretty familiar with is St. Patrick driving the snakes out of Ireland. Like, we now know that that was code for druids and other, like, pagan practitioners. This was not a thing where it's like they were writing that they were driving out witches, but really they were driving out XYZ. Like, this 100% what was happening concurrently in that town was that there were witches and young girls mostly were being afflicted is what they called it like afflicted by witchcraft right yeah bewitched and and this had happened before there was a boston family in 1688 who people believed widely to have been bewitched and actually uh, a congregational minister named cotton mather wrote about it in a book Mm. called memorable provinces relating to witchcraft and possessions um, and some people think that the girls would have read that book or had it in their home or, or knew about it because their father slash uncle, whatever, was this really important religious person. Yes. And had maybe been a contributing editor. Right. Uh, and the thing, another thing to remind that you just pointed out, that's important that that had happened to that family recently is like in 1692, 1688 is yesterday. The right. news cycle is like a six month, seventh month, 11 month, two year news cycle when you're in colonies like this. There is no news more recent than that. You know, like there, there's no daily news right. at this time. There's like couriers physically would have to come to your town and bring you news. Right. So a medical, a local doctor looks at them and he says, I mean, I think you're right. I think it's bewitchment. I think they're being bewitched. Um, and Paris is like, what, what's happening to you? Tell me, tell me, tell me. Um, I mean, we can only imagine the force behind this man based on what we know of him to get his daughter and friend and niece to confess. And so Betty and Abigail say that they have been bewitched by Tichuba and they say they've been witched bewitched by two other members of the community, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. Sarah Good was what people describe as uh, like a beggar. She was like a a 
destitute member of the community and considered sort of an outlier in the church. Like she didn't often come to church. And Sarah Osborne Mm -hmm. was a bedridden woman. She was very Mm -hmm. elderly and the community gossiped extensively about the fact that she had been romantically involved with an indentured servant. So these are people who were on the outskirts of this very puritanical community. Maybe not that pure. (laughs) And maybe not reliable in terms of social standing. Right. And uh, what is it called? Like a sharp eared, like people who like really hear for detail, sharp eared, eagle eared listeners. Eagle Eagle eared. I don't think eagles have that good hearing. No, they don't. But I'm thinking of like eagle eyed, eagle eyed readers will notice. Yeah. Eagle eared listeners who are, uh, who were raised in a, environment of divisive white ethnicity will begin to recognize the names of some of these people based on their relevance to different biblical books. So you'll start to notice that as the accusations go on, the names become more Irish and more Catholic and less Old Testament, uh, names that you might have in common with like now they're very common Jewish names, but they're old Testament names. And these are more likely to be Puritan English women. And then you start hearing names that like Bridget later that are like very clearly Irish Catholic names. Right. So this accusation is made. It's Tichaba and it's the two Sarahs, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. And on March 1st, two magistrates from Salem town. Remember this is happening in Salem village named John Hawthorne and Jonathan Corwin. They go to the village to conduct a public inquiry. Hawthorne of Nathaniel Hawthorne. Right. So good and Osborne, the two Sarah's both protest their own innocence, but good accuses Osborne. So good says I didn't do it, but (laughs) she definitely did. At first, Tichaba also claims to be blameless. Wasn't me. I hope you will. Over this. I hope so you while will. you're like talking about these like really horrible things that happen to these like women at the edges of society, just shaggy in the background's like, she got me butt naked, banging on the bathroom floor. <laughs> Gone. <laughs> uh, so Tichaba also claims to be blameless, but she mm-hmm. is like all of them, she is pressed extensively about what is happening. And she tells the magistrates that she actually had been visited by the devil and that she'd made a deal with him. And she gives this vivid testimony over the course of three days where she talks about encountering Satan, his animal familiars, the devil's book, and how a tall, dark man from Boston had called upon her to sign the book. You know when it's 1692 and everyone in Boston is tall and dark? (laughs) It's so, one of my favorite things about uh, reading about this is how often people just describe the worst thing that could possibly happen as coming from Boston. Yeah, facts. I mean, Boston is a cesspool. (laughs) It still is. But at this point, it's like, this is still in the era where cities are very, very impoverished. And then on the edge of the city is a very elite class of learned people. And then further than that is sort of a... What do you call people who like work and then uh, surf, sort of like almost a surf 
class right. of uh, either self-sufficient or tax-paying farm people. Right. So she describes this and it's like multiple days of testimony. The community is wrapped. And she says that she saw Good's name, that she saw Orsborne's name. So both the Sarah's and that she saw the names of seven other members of the community, but she couldn't read them. So the magistrates are like, not only do we have what we need, we have more than we can handle. Like, it's not just that three members of this community have been bewitching the daughters, of, the daughter and like the charges of our most important religious figure, but also there are other witches in the community and we don't know who they are. And after this happens, things start cascading. Other girls and young women begin to experience these same fits. So one of them is Anne Putnam Jr., her mother, her cousin, a woman named Mary Walcott, the Putnam servant, whose name is Mary Lewis. I'm sorry, Mercy Lewis. And these, Mercy Lewis is such a good name. Really good Puritan name. And it's obviously spelled L-E-W-I-S and not the French way. Gotta of be course. so. Of course. At that point, just throw you into the ocean. <laughs> so these women are asked to give testimony about who is bewitching them and they just start naming people. Like this is the point it would, that people describe as the hysteria of the Salem witch trials. Yes, so they're naming fervor. members of the community who, as, as Eva was alluding to earlier, it starts with people on the fringes, but then now we're naming people who were like, there's a woman named Rebecca nurse who was just like, yes, she's an upstanding member of the she's community. She, she's she's Quaker-esque. There's concerns that she may have Quaker affiliations right. because she had adopted an orphaned Quaker child. How yes. dare you? So you a lot of just put her in the fire. <laughs> so a lot of these people who are being named turned out coincidentally to be enemies of the Putnam family or people who the Putnam family uh? has a vested interest in stamping out. And Putnam family members and in-laws of the family end up being the accusers in dozens of cases, miraculously. So funny how that happens. Do you want to talk about the trials themselves or do you want me to keep running with it? You can keep running with it. I'm enjoying just interjecting. I, I do want to inter my one thing I want to interject Please. that I meant to interject earlier is Tichiba saying that she could see the names but could not read them is going to become very is going to become a hinge of like revisionist feminist theory about the Salem witchcraft trials. I just want to give an additional cultural context that women in Puritan communities at the time could read, but they could not write. So men could write because they could hold clergy offices, um, which were really the only kind of offices I was then going to say like, but like, yeah, the clergy is the law and the law is clergy in a lot of ways. Um, but women were required to be able to read the scripture both for themselves and also to their children. So they could read, but it's pretty rare that any of these women would be able to write. So keep in mind that any testimony that you're hearing that is given by a woman is probably given verbally by the woman and written down by a man. Whereas testimony that are that's given by men during this are probably written down by the man themselves who gave it. So now we're at 
uh, May 27th of 1692. So it's been, it's been sig significant number of accusations. And an important thing about these accusations is that when someone is accused, they're not just accused, they put them in jail, they imprison yes. them. And the jail sentence is, first of all, they are charged money every night that they stay in the jail. It's extensive yes. ledgers are kept of every single item they use in these jails. And the jails are horrifying. Like the worst, uh, I mean, yes. like people are shackled, held standing up. They're, they flood with feet of like freezing cold water. There are rats. People are only fed if they can afford food. Like it's, it's nightmarish. Yes. I, I want to point out a few more people who were uh, arrested and charged in this meantime of, all of this snowballing of arresting and charging. First, I want to point out that Rebecca Nurse, uh, her sister came to her defense. Her sister's name was Sarah, another Sarah, different Sarah, Sarah Cloyce. Uh, immediately afterwards, Sarah Cloyce charged with witchcraft. Um, then Mary Eastie, who is uh, the third sister of uh, Sarah Cloyce and Rebecca Nurse. She comes to both of their defense. She is then immediately arrested for witchcraft. And again, not arrested for like facilitating witchcraft or testifying on behalf of a witch. After she, after she says, or in the context of her saying, like vouching for her sisters, somebody then be becomes afflicted by right. her witchcraft. And then she's additionally indicted isn't even the word because I would imply like any sort of due process. Right. Um, and there's and other, yeah. yeah, accused and imprisoned. And then there's other sort of like links. Uh, so like Elizabeth Proctor uh, and then her husband was then immediately afterwards accused of also being a witch who was one of the first men. Uh, and I think maybe the, yeah, definitely the first man in the Salem witch trials to be accused of witchcraft. And he was, uh, and then also George Burroughs, who was the minister right before Paris. Right. So now we're in mid-May of 1692. William Pips or William Pips, we were just discussing, has been in England. He comes back and he finds that there are dozens of accused witches filling up these jails and there are accusations that are overwhelming the local court. Like they're shipping people to Boston to be imprisoned because they don't have space in Salem town. And, and say, like they just, it's, it's overwhelming. Shipping up to Boston. Yeah. So the governor Pips establishes a special court and the court is called Oyer and Terminer and Lieutenant governor, William Stoughton. Stoughton. That's a good question. Uh, I honestly don't Stoughton. know. I was I looking and seeing Stoughton, but I don't mm. think that's right. Um, but yes, tell us all about Oyer and Terminer. So the term Oyer and Terminer is a partial translation of the Anglo-French phrase Oyer et Terminer, which literally means hear and determine. So in English law, Oyer and Terminer courts were meant to like inquire into felonies and misdemeanors specified by the commission. The inquiry was by means of a grand jury. And if the defendant was indicted, the accused would be tried, judged by a jury, and if found guilty, sentenced to punishment by the court. So these are like 
Yes. This is actually These really are important. Like, line them up and check them off convictions. Yeah. Yes, some people were found not guilty, or rather, they were not found guilty. Um, Mary Eastie, who I mentioned before, the third sister of Rebecca Nurse and Sarah Cloyes, was found was not found guilty. Then there was a public outcry, and she was rearrested and found guilty. Um, but yes, as you're saying, this is here and determine and. Determine means determine that they are guilty. Yes. It means, it means, you know, deal with it, deal with it now. It's yeah. not the, the, the attention to the processes of the law that we now associate with the American legal system. Actually <laughs> shock. You may be shocked to hear that in 1692, we're not in effect the way that we imagine them to be now. Yeah. Um, oh, one thing that gets a lot of attention when talking about these cases and the way that the uh, cases were tried is the idea of spectral evidence. Mm. And mm-hmm. should we talk about spectral evidence? Please, dude, talk about increased matter. Okay. Um, I'm actually going to see. I had a list of the additional. I also want to throw in just a totally fun, gory fact. Uh, in a very unusual circumstance, one of the people who was not even tried because he refused to be tried because ahead of him, Every single person had been tried and found guilty and had uh, many of them had been hung. So he refused to be tried. um, And they considered that to be flying in the face of God's evaluation of your purity, which God is entitled to evaluate your purity. And they stacked a bunch of stones on him until he died. Yeah, they pressed him to death. Yes, which is a very unusual and particularly Puritan punishment in which you can see not even the echoes because it's so very blatant, but in which you can see the true attention to theocracy that is happening here. Yeah, that's the only execution of its kind ever sanctioned by (laughs) any American government. So the U.S. government has sanctioned all kinds of horrifying executions since. Um, True. Well, that's fine. Um, so spectral evidence, the very short definition is that it, it's testimony that includes dreams and visions. So when we were talking earlier about the idea that the devil is real, the devil is among us, and it's difficult to ascertain what he does, but that's your job. Like this is within that mm-hmm. context. The Puritans believed that spiritual causes lay at the root of physical realities. So if the crop failed, if it rained too hard, if it was too cold, the devil may have had a role in those things. And that's part of why they were taken with this difficult and harsh landscape because they believe that they could improve it with the strength of their faith. And Mm -hmm. they believe that Satan could not take the form of an unwilling person. You had to invite Satan. There's this, this, when people talk about like Protestantism in American uh, in the American psychology, the idea of like willingness and individual choice is so present in puritanical views, especially around Satan. Satan can't take the form of an unwilling person. You you have mm. to, Satan can only come mm. to a person who has agreed to it. If you refuse to sign mm. the book, Satan will yes. not take you. You don't have, you know, accidental possession in this way. Yeah, very now, different from Catholic beliefs. Right. And different from like when we've talked about... Um, 
Catholic exorcisms in the past. Like this is, yes, this is not, you have to chase the spirit out of the innocent. This is like, as soon as you say yes to the devil, you friend out. Exactly. Throw the whole man out. (laughs) Yeah. So there was uh, the president of, well, anyway, we'll get to that. But basically people would say, I saw a ghost or I saw a spirit. I saw the devil in the form of the accused. I saw them as a black cat. I saw them as whatever companion form the devil may have allowed his animals to take. That person was a witch because this spectral evidence, this, this spiritual evidence was leading to these physical manifestations, right? And so spectral evidence was considered a very important part of these cases and people were tried and convicted on the basis of like dreams mm-hmm. and Harvard, which I was talking about earlier as being the kind of uh, echelon of divine education and thus education in America. Uh, at the time, the president was named increased Mather, one of the most incredible I mean, such just absolutely name. insane fucking. He's packing on mass. So good. Increase Mather. He denounced the use of spectral evidence in October. He wrote, It were better that 10 suspected witches should escape than one innocent person be condemned, referring to the use of spectral evidence to condemn people. And pretty soon after that, Governor dissolved the court of Oyer and Terminer in part because of this pronouncement. But it was considered a very controversial and dangerous practice and actually a not insignificant amount of American law around courts Mm. (laughs) came in reaction to this being uh, done. (laughs) Yeah, dude. I mean, Harvard divinity is now Harvard law. I mean, right period they didn't add a new school and call call it harvard law they uh broke the two things into two major tracks in the same college like uh these things that increase mather can't not laugh these things that increase mather decreased (laughs) decreed like are have set a lot of precedent in american law uh yeah, so when the, the Court of Oyer and Terminer is dissolved, Governor Phipps is also kind of in a PR crisis because in the beginning, he seemed to be bringing a sense of law and order to this thorny, difficult, unprofitable colony. Uh he was like, we're having all these trials. We are hanging people who right. are not supporting the mission of the bay, of the colony of Massachusetts Bay. Which I should, uh, I, sorry, I just didn't jump in. I skipped over a part when I was saying that. They did hang many people. <laughs> it wasn't oh, like, yeah, yeah, just to make yeah. it clear, the first person was Bridget yeah. Bishop. She was the first person hanged by this, but like they lined him up and sentenced them to die. Yes, 100%. So almost every single person is hung up until what we've just said. And then the big switch is when the court of Oyer and Terminer is dissolved, Governor Phipps writes to the crown saying that he is working on clearing the rest of the people who have been arrested and he will not arrest anyone more. And he, he tells people to stop arresting witches. He's like, you got to 
fucking chill with this. You're making me look bad. Immediately, everything flips. All of the people who are remaining in jail for this, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, cleared by proclamation, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. One girl dies in jail. Another girl can't leave jail because she can't afford to pay the fees to leave jail. But, you know, um, cleared, 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 dies in custody, cleared, 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 not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Through kind of the rest of... I mean, even Tichiba is not indicted right. in the end after this amazing backflip that, right. you know, Governor Phipps becomes sort of famous for doing in a, a few different contexts that we don't have time to cover today. But he is ultimately a governor of, I mean, in many ways, a lot of governors are, but he is ultimately a governor uh, of PR to get money from England for this insane endeavor. And once he's not getting money from England because England's not approving of this behavior, cuts it off. That's it. It's done. (laughs) Uh, So during the reign of the court of lawyer and terminator, they executed 20 people accused of witchcraft. And then, you know, as Eva said, you get these English clergymen writing letters that are like, I don't approve of this. And then Phipps was like, no. And part of that is because they they uh, outlawed spectral evidence. Yes. It wasn't allowed to have. So once they dissolved the court of lawyer and terminer, they passed it to a different court and that court wasn't allowed to use spectral evidence. And so they had no evidence because there was no way to connect it outside of this realm beyond the physical. Yes. Yes. So then... A few things happen. Many things happen in the aftermath of this. Most (laughs) of this is the aftermath of it. But I do want to say that, again, it's the testimony of the afflicted is a little difficult because all of the testimony of the afflicted is given by young girls verbally and interpreted and recorded by politicians. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... Two of the afflicted issued I don't know what it's called, like a reversal. What do you call it when you redact your state like your testimony? Oh yeah. I guess just a redaction. Two of them issued a redaction. So Ann Putnam Jr. and Abigail Faulkner both issued redactions of their testimony that they had been afflicted by witchcraft. And the Massachusetts General Court declared a state holiday on which everyone had to fast and pray for forgiveness for the mistakes that they made during this trial. This is like five, ten years down the road. It's very interesting. And so now we are, let's skip many years in the future. (laughs) We'll do those middling years later, but now we're today in the shadow of the Salem witch trials. We have some very strange things. First, Governor Phipps lost control of Maine. Maine is now its own state as of 1810, I'm pretty sure. So not in Governor Phipps' lifetime, but he essentially launched a 150-year boondoggle of trying to extend the Massachusetts Bay Colony all the way up into the territory of the French. 
um, which he had just absolutely no military power funding public uh, interest like behind him in doing it. Just a bad idea. Um, the town of Salem Town, so the place where the ju- the magistrates and were from, and the ju- and the grand jury were from, the upstanding citizens who could read and write, and thus were allowed to to do things like serve on juries and be magistrates. They have kept the name Salem. And even now, during this month, I saw someone on Instagram today, on Instagram stories in Salem, Massachusetts, in their town square, where they have uh, strings of little LED lights with jack-o'-lanterns on them, and enormous revenue of tourism relating not to the Salem witch trials, but just to witchiness in general. Like, there's statues of, like... What's the main character in Bewitched? I don't know. Never seen it. Okay. But statues of characters from TV shows, like, and movies, like the witches from Hocus Pocus, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, whoever the main character in Bewitched is, haven't seen it, might be Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Gonna look it up really quick. No, Samantha. I See, I don't know. This is like from the 60s and 70s, but... Yeah, they have statues of these pop culture figures in this town and every business on the Salem Town Square is like cauldron shit, which isn't even the kind of witches that were these witches anyway, but like, uh, who has the time? But meanwhile, the town of Danvers, which is where most of the accusers and accused were from, which was Salem Village, they've changed their name and their archives have been moved off site or mysteriously are missing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I can't offer any theory on which particular person removed them, but obviously at some point somebody removed, uh, no, who knows when, but somebody removed the journals of these people. And most of the other towns that were involved and over Topsfield, Lynn, have kept the same name, but their name is not nearly as attached as Salem. Right. I mean, you can't find the Salem witch trials on the Danvers, connect the Danvers, Massachusetts historical society website. Right. And it's like the one thing that happened there. <laughs> so, so what do you make of that? I don't know. I mean, I guess just that the town that wielded the power and didn't have to hang their mothers, daughters, loved ones, friends. Maids. Maids, indentured servants, didn't have to watch them die or watch them be possessed, are more willing to own that history. I mean, that is like a very surface level take. But I don't know if the town of Danver... I don't know if... It's very difficult for a community to heal from any sort of trauma that's significant. And I think that in the present allegedly secular political environment, even though it's really not secular, it's even more difficult to heal from trauma that resulted 
of something that is now being called religious hysteria mm-hmm. is now being called, you know, maybe a symptom of gr- like a poisoning from mold in your grain. Like I think it it's harder to get through that when so much attention is instead being placed on oh well what really happened? Why did this happen? And not like 20 people in a town of 50 were hung. Right. In the course of 4 months. it's really sobering like people Mm -hmm. reading about it is really sobering people treat this event with a lot of um obviously there's a huge amount of not a huge amount how to say this there's a huge amount of morbid interest if that's where you're going but do you mean like it's it's become camp is sort of yeah there's a degree of um there was a moment when it was really fashionable to consider the Salem witch trials as both a site of uh, religious hysteria and also as a location of feminist revisionist history. Yes. And I don't really feel comfortable deriding either of those projects because obviously there was an element of, I mean, they were, Puritans murdering people for the day. I mean, obviously that's an element of it. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously it's hard to even call it religious hysteria because Puritanism is already to the nines, you know, like how yeah. do you get more right. irrational than, I mean, Puritanism is very structured. It's not irrational right. in that sense, but it's, it's not chaotic, but it's, it's a fever pitch. Yes. It's yeah, exactly. It's and obviously it's about women. Like obviously these were girls doing yes. the accusing and women being accused and girls being accused. Yes. And so obviously that is an element of it, but also just to read the facts of the case without trying to interpret them one way or the other, as I was in preparation from this episode was incredibly sobering because. Yeah. Uh, have you seen, you've seen the crucible the play yeah i've been in the crucible the play oh yeah i guess i knew that so important to say is that there is this play the crucible which is about the salem witch trials um filtered through as a metaphor about mccarthyism and the accusation Mm -hmm. of communists in america in the 50s yes um and i think that led to a widespread re-emergence of interest in the salem witch trials on the broad stage because people were thinking yes. about it through this lens and so because of that it's easy to think about the salem it's it's become popular to think about the salem witch trials as a metaphor like yes. oh this is you know this is like a witch trial this is irrational this is hysterical like all these things um and to use it specifically as a metaphor for politics and for like making irrational accusations or, or accusing people of things. And I'm obviously the crucible I've found is to very affecting, effective play and quite brilliant, but it's really not, it doesn't have to be a metaphor. Like it really, right. It happened, which is almost it's unbelievable. Already a very intense story. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's extraordinary to read about it. And I mean, yeah, I know that there were witch trials throughout Europe and that the things they did to those people accused of being witches were awful. And I've talked about that in the past, like how in Germany they would make you like walk on burning coals or walk through freezing yes. cold 
like and they would like freeze try and freeze you to death kind of a thing to see if you resisted the element yes and yet somehow to read about this one which feels so close to home um I just found really intense and part of that is because I didn't really grow up learning about this because I'm from the west coast and so I was wondering for you what is the role of this in local history for you like how did what was the narrative around this when you were growing up was it treated with seriousness with camp that's a good question um the history of massachusetts is a like seemingly never-ending like crashing wave after wave of like religious fury and it's not always like this sometimes it's like the transcendentalists sometimes it's like the calvinists sometimes it's like the christian scientists these are all churches that originated or religious movements that were either originated in or were very strong in massachusetts um we've had like a lot of cults that live in like isolated area, isolated rural areas of Massachusetts. And I think when you are reading about it in school, it's a lot more, hold on, let me think. I think it's like more dramatic is how it's seen and less like it is actually something that's happened during history. Mm. It's more like the Arthur Miller version of it. Like it's more like cinematic almost a lot of. And, and I can't speak to how every single person experienced it, but I can certainly speak to the trend of textbooks that are used in public schools in Massachusetts. They're very oriented towards these visually striking cinematic moments in Massachusetts history. So one if by land, two if by sea, throwing the tea into the harbor, like these really severe visual moments. So like hanging witches. Um, And I don't think it's analyzed on an emotional level really in the way that now it is in a, in a, in either a feminist way or an assessment of religious hysteria or yeah, it's more seen just the same way as like when you picture who is Louisa May Alcott's dad, the transcendentalist, like him, like riding through the fields of Hadley, you know, or like the way you hear about, um, trying to think of another good one, but yeah, they're all just sort of like these yeah, these very, like, cinematic moments that you could picture, like, in a proscenium painting mm-hmm. and and not so much a, a – there's very little critical lens in the teaching of Massachusetts history. Right. That's interesting. I mean, I, I only bring it up because it is, it is so cinematic. Mm-hmm. Like, it does feel – it does feel hard to believe that it – is real it just feels right um 
The Raid on but, Deerfield. That's the other one I was thinking of. But yeah. But just because, but that's partially because it's been dramatized so many times, I think. Yes. Like it, it comes yeah. pre, it comes pre-narrativized. Um, did you want to talk about PTSD? Yeah, I was, I was going to say, oh, can you hear that in the background? No. Okay. I was just going to say one thing to consider that isn't always written about as much in the political context, because again, it has to do with the emotional feelings of the victims, which I think people try to avoid. And here's just me inserting my own, like, you know, opinion that you guys have heard before in other episodes, but like the further that historical analysis can stay away from the real emotional experience of the person affected by a magical incident, the further they can stay away from acknowledging that there could be a reality to the feelings and the effects of magic. So in my cynical sense, I see uh, that to me, there's a deliberate omission of the actual feelings of the afflicted, of the like victims of witchcraft, meaning the people who experienced the symptoms of witchcraft, not meaning the victims as in the people who were like tried and hung for something that they maybe didn't do. Um, But I think if we do look more critically at that, we could maybe see it as one of the earliest iterations long before post-traumatic stress disorder was understood. One of the earliest iterations of the far-reaching effects of traumatic stress from war on American communities, like just to go real wide with it. That's something that America has never been able to process on a cultural level. And we have been trying more in the last hundred years than we ever did before. Um, But this town that they're in is full of people who are fighting very much fighting a war against, I mean, they're also in the midst of the English Civil War just just 50 years previously, but they're in, they're fighting a war against the indigenous people of Maine, Massachusetts, who are not, who are a formidable uh, opposition. And whether or not, you know, whether or not, I'm trying to think like what to say. Like, it's not like, yeah, I mean, whatever. The Algonquit and the Wampanoag warriors are extremely violent and they take no prisoners. So are the English. The English are not, you know, there can be no absolution of the English and the Puritans in this moment. They are heinously violent and like a force of severe racialized colonization but they're also losing at this moment in time, they're losing. And I don't think that can be understated. And I think it has been. So I guess I think it can be because it has been, but you know what I mean? At this moment in time, now when we look at something like this, I think we need to start taking a look at how that feels to be a young woman in a town and to live in a constant racialized culture of fear of the Algonquit warriors uh, kidnapping and raping young English girls, which 
the extent to which that was true at this point is lost to history. The extent to which that was pushed as a narrative is clearly very high. And these young girls had experienced having their families torn apart multiple times. Offshoots of this community, Salem Town and Salem Village, had been whether you want to say that they did it on purpose or they were tricked into it by sort of like the propaganda narrative of expansion or whether they were just seeking adventure, whether they were hardcore violent, they had tried many times to go up the main coast and many times had been sent back with what do you like, what do you say? Like just absolutely having their ass handed to them, like barely getting away with their lives, losing every single thing that they owned, losing wives, daughters, sons, husbands, fathers, like everything you can think of coming back. They're there for about two years. They marry again, have 10 more children back up North, try it again, again, murdered. (laughs) Like, and that's where these girls are growing up. I mean, this girl who's 12 years old, all she's ever known is an extremely high mortality rate and a culture of fear of everything around her that is so severe that a person could not possibly have a normal thought ever in their day. Yeah. I mean, you just couldn't, you just, you're constantly afraid of the judgment of God, of the judgment of your father, of the, uh, of dying in the cold, of dying of starvation, dying of smallpox, uh, witchcraft (laughs) uh you know being raided by the wampanoag yeah and a lot of these girls who were afflicted with witchcraft were orphans or their father's estates had been decimated by the frontier wars and so they had no dowry they had no prospects there was no future for them Mm -hmm. to speak to your point about the psychological state of these people yeah so then to hear that they some of them redact their statements later and some of them apologize but don't offer a redaction i just wish again to the point of they they were not literate uh whatever the version of literate is to write they were not scritterate i wish they had been i mean that's not something they could have controlled but i would love to see the diary of ann putnam jr if she had ever been allowed to write right I know what you mean. Anything else you want to cover in this app? Not in this episode, but um, but yeah, we're going to continue to see the effects of the Salem witch trials going forward and this, these other episodes about various panics of satanic magic and influence and spirits and visions and and possessions and such over the next few weeks. Uh, fun fact that I wanted to throw in earlier, but then lost the thread of. So the court of Oyer and Terminer, when that was overturned, they replaced it with a court named the Superior Court of Judicature um, in like the General Court of Massachusetts. Yeah. They did that court and they were the ones who tried the rest and let everybody go. And that court continued to serve. And in 1780, after the adoption of the Massachusetts Constitution, the court name was changed to the Supreme Judicial Court, and it is the oldest appellate court in continuous existence in the Western Hemisphere and still serves today. And that is the court that my mom argues at. 
the John Adams Courthouse in Boston, Massachusetts. Not the John Adams Courthouse. The John Adams Courthouse. Dude. Unreal. I know. Massachusetts, dude. I mean, this whole country and this whole world is so is so insane. But, you know, every now and again, you read stuff like that and you're like, holy shit. The entire Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts, which is responsible essentially for my personal entire livelihood and the livelihood of millions of other people who grew up in Massachusetts. Like not just that they, that's where my mom earns a living arguing, but it's also where they decided to, you know, make fucking gay marriage legal in the first state in the entire country. That's where they decided to have healthcare that was universally accessible in Massachusetts. Like, that's so crazy. It started as the court of Oyer and Terminer to hang 20 people in 1692. Yeah, it's insane. Super insane. Oh, also, I had coronavirus. That's why we're late with this episode. I'm going to put that on the top. <laughs> it's so funny. Sorry. Like, sorry. Yeah, I've had COVID. That's, if you're yeah, mad at us, if you're mad at us about late. that, you're the problem. I could not smell anything. So she so definitely couldn't, couldn't the smell episode. the research. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't sniff it out like a bloodhound. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll see you next week to talk about feminist witchcraft and then to talk about the satanic panic. That we Can't wait. There, right? Can't wait. Bye. Bye. Okay,